So without further ado, let's get started with our first talk on epigenetics from Dr. Nessa Carey. So Dr. Carey is a biologist working in the field of molecular biology and biotechnology. She's the international director of the technology transfer organization Praxis Unico and a visiting professor at, at Imperial College London. With expertise in the field of genetics and in technology transfer, she promotes the movement of science between academia and industry, lecturing often to school students and early career scientists. Dr. Carey writes books and articles for a scientifically interested general audience and contributes to the Huffington Post. She's the author of The Epigenetics Revolution and Junk DNA, A Journey Through the Dark Matter of the Genome, which explores advances in the field of epigenetics and their implications for medicine. You can find out more about Dr. Carey's work at www.nessacarey.co.uk. So let's give uh, Dr. Carey a warm welcome and let's get started. Ness, whenever you're ready, um, good luck and hope you, hope you enjoy it. Thanks very much, Niall. Um, it's great to be here with you all. I'm really thrilled to have this chance to talk to you about epigenetics because epigenetics is awesome. It's just weird and wonderful and changing our perceptions of biology all the time. It's also massively misunderstood and overhyped, and I'm going to try and talk you through some of that. So today we're going to be doing this, and it's based on my first book, which was The Epigenetics Revolution. And Niall just gave me a lovely introduction. Um, I actually don't work for Praxis Unico anymore, and I've just made a note to myself I must update my website. I work for myself, so I can't claim the glory of that organisation anymore. But alongside my serious proper day job, I write science books and I like writing them about the extraordinary things that are happening, particularly in terms of understanding of DNA and of our genome. And I actually worked in epigenetic drug discovery for about a decade. So it's a topic that I really adore and I hope you're going to enjoy it. Now, I'm going to give this talk more or less in two halves. First half is going to focus on what epigenetics is, how it works, why it's important. And then the second half, we'll talk about its implications for understanding psychological disorders and psychological processes. So stick with me, even if you're really keen on just the psychology bit, it'll make so much more sense if you understand the science at the molecular level beforehand. So that's what we'll do. And we'll have a five minute break where you can grab a quick coffee. Epigenetics, there's kind of a clue in the name. It includes the word genetics, and we cannot talk about epigenetics without talking about genetics. And 20 years ago, just over 20 years ago, the first human genome sequence was released, and there was this enormous conference. And um, at that conference, Bill Clinton, who was president of the US at the time, stood up and said, today we are learning the language in which God created life. I have no idea who briefed Bill Clinton to talk about God in front of a room full of scientists celebrating their greatest ever achievement. And it's a bit of a strange call, that one, really. Um, but he clearly thought this was a very big thing. The sequencing of the human genome, part of the cost of that was paid for by the Wellcome Trust, the British charity. And the chair of the Wellcome Trust at the time described the sequencing of the human genome as the outstanding achievement in terms of human history which I think resulted in a pudding that was a bit over-egged. It was a very big thing, the sequencing of the human genome. Um, but it didn't lead 
immediately to things like the cure of all diseases, which is the sort of stuff that was promised. And the reason that scientists promised things like that was because to sequence the human genome was extraordinarily expensive. It cost about $2 billion. Now, these days, you can get your own genome sequence for about $1,000, but that's because the technology has accelerated so much. Back then, it was a really big deal. But what it was was an infrastructure project, a fantastically important infrastructure project. We absolutely needed to know the human genome sequence, and it's created vast opportunities for loads of other research. But it was an infrastructure project. It was also an infrastructure project where, as a scientific community, we were a little bit... Um, what would be the right word, disingenuous about what it could deliver. Because our claim was that we would understand everything if we knew the genetic sequence. And sometimes that can actually be true. Sometimes the genetic sequence of an individual is absolutely the key thing about them. You inherit 3,000 million letters of genetic information from your mother and 3,000 million from your father. And sometimes all it takes is one of those to be wrong. One letter in three billion, and you can have a de devastating genetic disease. It can absolutely destroy your life. So the genetic code is really important. When you have that one absolutely devastating mutation in three billion letters, that's like you've been dealt the worst hand of cards in a game of poker that anyone could ever have. And there's nothing you can do about it. You cannot win that hand. But most of us, with our 3,000 million letters of information from each parent, we haven't been dealt a disastrous hand. We've been dealt a kind of average hand. What epigenetics is, it's the difference between the hand you're given and the way you play it. Epigenetics can be the difference between an average hand that turns into a winning one or an average hand that turns into a losing one. Now, I've used that term epigenetics a lot and I haven't explained what I mean and I will on the next slide. Because you see, even when we were saying we need billions of dollars to sequence the human genome, we knew that not everything could be explained by genetics. We knew not everything could be explained by your DNA sequence. And that's because of situations like this. What we have here are examples that we call epigenetic phenomena. What we mean is that two things are genetically the same, and yet they look or behave differently from each other. So a classic example is laboratory mice. About 100 years ago, people realized you could create identical mice, and you just did it by inbreeding. You just kept breeding closer and closer, more uh, related mice, and eventually you'd end up with mice that were all the same at the DNA level. And yet these mice varied in things like body weight. They could have quite significant variations in body weight, even though they were genetically the same and kept in the same environment. That doesn't make any sense. And it was such a well-established phenomenon that it got given a particular name. It was called intangible variation. So if you had said to somebody, these mice are genetically the same, and they're in the same environment. Why are they different from each other? The person would nod very wisely and say, ah, it's an example of intangible variation. 
which is a classic case of in biology, we give something a fancy name and pretend that we understand it. And we didn't. If you look at a maggot and the fly it turns into, they have exactly the same DNA, exactly the same DNA sequence. And yet they look entirely different. So the DNA is not, one DNA does not need to one phenotype there. Turtles, turtles are beautiful. I love turtles. But here's the thing. If I were to take DNA from a man and DNA from a woman, I could do some tests on it, some very basic genetic tests, and I could tell you which came from the man and which came from the woman. Because in humans, our sex, our gender, I never remember which way to get that one right, are determined by genetics. It's not the same in turtles. In turtles, all turtles have essentially the same DNA. Whether they turn out to be male or female depends on the temperature at which the eggs incubate. And this is a very strange um, example of a climate change, global warming, is causing problems in the ecosystems. There are areas of the world where there is now a 50 to 1 imbalance of female to male turtles amongst the hatchlings. That's going to have huge effects on the population. And so in all of these situations, we have situations where two things are the same genetically at the DNA level, but the outcomes are different. And these are known as epigenetic phenomena. And epi just comes from the Greek. It means at, on, in addition to, as well as. So we know that DNA is not enough on its own to determine what an organism looks like. But there's an even better example of why there has to be additional information. And there's actually 132 examples of it on this call at the moment. And that is because every single one of us is a masterpiece of epigenetics. Each of us, though we never like to think of this, formed when the egg from our mother fused with the sperm from our dad. And that created one cell. And that one cell had the potential to become any other cell it liked. That one cell divided into two, they divided into four, into eight, 16, 32, and so on, until you get to the 70 trillion cells that make up the human body. Unbelievable number of cells, 70 trillion. And within those cells, we have different types of cells. We have skin cells and kidney cells and heart cells and skeletal muscle cells and different types of blood cells, hundreds of different types of cells. And yet they all have exactly the same DNA sequence as each other. The only exception are a small number of immune cells that have shuffled their DNA around. Pretty much every one of the 70 trillion cells has exactly the same DNA as each other and as that one little starting cell that formed after fertilization. So how do we get all of these different outcomes, all of these different cell types from the same genetic code? It's another example of epigenetics in action. And that's because we have to think of DNA not as being a template. DNA is a script. And if any of you ever acted at any point in your life, You'll have done the rehearsals that have been a printed script. And at some point, you'll have highlighted bits of it. And you'll have stuck post-it notes on it. And you'll have put pencil marks on it. And you'll have subtly modified that script. Filmmakers do it all the time. What I've got here are two examples of the movie Romeo and Juliet. Um, the first in black and white is from the 1930s. 
and the one in colour is just before the year 2000. They both use Shakespeare's script. They use the same script, but the productions look entirely different. Really sorry about this. I'm a bit sniffy today, so I'm still happy, but they... And that's how I think of epigenetics. Epigenetics is the process in living organisms by which you can take the same DNA script and create different productions, which is pretty cool. But it's not all there is. You see, if all I had were cool examples of epigenetic phenomena, this talk would be fun, but there wouldn't be much real, there wouldn't be much science behind it. What's new is that we now actually understand the molecular basis of a lot of epigenetic phenomena. And it's the difference between two very important words in the English language. Um, this is a movie called The Time Machine made in the 1960s. Um, any of you who are fans of the Big Bang Theory will also recognize the time machine from an episode of the Big Bang Theory. And there's a brilliant bit where the time traveler, this guy here, a strangely good looking scientist, is explaining to other scientists how his time machine will work. And he says, if you want to move into the future, you sit in the chair in the time machine, you push the lever forwards and you will travel into the future. On the other hand, if you want to travel into the past, <coughs> you sit in the chair, you pull the lever backwards and you will travel into the past. And everybody nods as if he's explained it. But he hasn't explained it. He's described what happens, but he has not given an explanation for how it works. And in epigenetics now, we have some explanations, and that's what makes it such an exciting part of science. The explanation lies in this, and this looks completely overwhelming. This is a picture of what DNA looks like in a cell. It's been color-coded, etc., but it's a basically a really good representation. Pretty much everybody knows that DNA is a double helix. It's this windy molecule. But in our cells, it's not this sort of long piece of windy string. It's actually very structured. It's structured around proteins. These are called histone proteins, and these are really important. So you've got these sort of fish-shaped proteins. Now, don't know if you can see my cursor, but if you can, the DNA is this double bit, this double helix. And DNA is clustered around eight of these histone proteins to make this nice compact shape. But each of those histone proteins also has a little protein tail that sticks out beyond the DNA. And you can see it in some of the views here. So what you get are 146 letters of DNA wrapped around eight histone proteins. And then a little bit of DNA carries on and then wraps around another 146 base pairs. And on and on and on. There are millions of these structures all along our DNA. Now, this was a beautiful piece of work that generated this picture. But it has disadvantages from my point of view. It cost millions to create the data behind it. It's a bit of an overwhelming image if you're not used to these very molecular pictures. And also, it's really hard for me to adjust this image to show you how things are happening in cells at any one time. So I made my own model, which had the advantage of it was very, very cheap. I could modify it and take photos to show you what I want to show you. And then I was able to eat it, which for me was a huge advantage because my model is made from strawberry laces and marshmallows. 
and jelly tots. And I have to say, don't want to boast, but I must say this, everybody loves this model. The only exception was I, when I presented it at a particular conference and just as I started presenting it, I remembered that this was a conference for people working in the dental sector. So if any of you are teeth specialists, I'm really sorry about all the sugar, but it's a really nice model, so bear with me. The strawberry laces represent the DNA, long stringy molecule. The marshmallows represent the histones, and I've gathered them here in a cluster of eight, just like you would have in the cell, eight histone proteins. And the DNA wraps around the eight histone proteins, carries on, wraps around another eight histone proteins. And I was going to make this model much bigger, but I discovered my partner had eaten my, most of the marshmallows. So we're just going to stick with two clusters. But it allows us to principles. Now, that's what the basic structure of DNA is. But the great thing about it is it can be modified. Let's think about the current situation we're in. We're in a pandemic. There's been lockdown, there's been stress, it's been pretty hard. And I think it was fairly common that at the early stages of the pandemic, quite a few of us probably would get to the end of an evening, particularly if you were having to homeschool your children, and you'd think, oh my God, that was a tough day. I'm going to have a little gin to take the edge off. And lockdown continued and you were still homeschooling your kids and still trying to find in the shops and it was all still very stressful and more and more often you'd find yourself thinking I need a little gin to take the edge off but quite soon you would discover that to take the edge off required more than one little gin it might require two or three your body was adapting to alcohol and needing more alcohol to get the same level of buzz here's what was happening in your liver you produce enzymes that break down the alcohol proteins that break down alcohol and those are coded for by genes as more alcohol was coming into your system, signaling was set up to your liver that said, there's more alcohol coming in. We need to produce more of the protein that will break the alcohol down. And as part of that signaling, epigenetic modifications, tiny little chemicals were added to the histone proteins near the gene that produces the alcohol breakdown enzyme. I've represented those by the green jelly tops. And they essentially are giving signals to the cell saying this gene needs to be active. We're switching on this gene. So those are the green jelly tops. The pandemic continues. You continue homeschooling, though perhaps it's got to the summer holidays by that point. There's more pasta in the shops. It starts to dawn on you that perhaps this habit of having a few gins to take the edge off might not be the healthiest thing to do in the world. So you start racking back on the alcohol. Once you do that, there's not lots of alcohol coming into the system. There is no point the enzyme producing lots of the, sorry, the liver producing lots of the enzyme to break down alcohol. It's just a waste of resources. Signaling cascades are set up again. The green jelly tots, those particular modifications to histones, are removed and replaced with a different type of modification, which in my case, we're using the purple jelly tots because they're my favorites. And these are signaling to the cell, don't switch this gene on. We want this gene to be off. So you don't produce large amounts of that enzyme. There are certain regions in our DNA where those, what we would call repressive histone modifications, the purple jelly tots, are there in quite high numbers. 
and they stay there for a long time. And that signals to the cell, we really don't want to switch this gene on. Under those circumstances, you get even more amendments, not just to the histone proteins, but directly to the DNA itself. And these I've represented here by the yellow jelly tops, and those are saying to the cells, seriously, don't switch this gene on. This gene can stay repressed. <laughs> there are certain areas of the genes where you get really heavy levels of those repressive modifications to the DNA itself. These are the yellow jelly tops, and it gets incredibly heavy covered with yellow jelly tops. You get a vast amount of this modification that says, honestly, don't switch this gene on. When that happens, it can distort the entire structure of the DNA. It all gets squashed up, like I've shown in this picture. And when that happens, there is no way that gene can be switched on. The DNA is completely crushed, and you just can't activate that gene. That gene can stay switched off for the rest of your life. So what we have here is we can take the same region of DNA, and this is happening all over your DNA all the time. And you have a mechanism that acts as an on-off switch. So the off switch is when you put lots of modification on the DNA itself, the yellow genitals. But you can also have regions of your genome which are switched on, but are or potentially switched on, and switched on to different levels. So the epigenetic system is working like a volume control as well as an on-off switch. I've just used yellow jelly tots to show you the modifications to the DNA and purple and green jelly tots to show you the modifications to the histone proteins. In reality, there's at least 50 different colors of jelly tots, if you like, that can go onto the histone proteins and can create incredible diversity of modifications. And that means that you have incredible, your cells have incredibly fine control over expression. So we can switch genes on or off and we can control their volume. These modifications are called epigenetic modifications, again from the Greek, because they're modifications at, on, in addition to, as well as the DNA. These small modifications, they never change what a gene codes for. It codes for exactly the same protein. But what they do is they change the levels of expression from a gene. So this is where they act as the on-off switch and the volume control. And this has enormous consequences. When a cell divides, a particular pattern of epigenetic modifications gets passed on. That's how cells, once they have become a particular cell type, only ever generate more cells of the same cell type. So once you've gone from one cell to 70 trillion, and those 70 trillion cells are all different types, the different types only create cells. And they do that because they pass on the epigenetic modifications. So this is why skin cells only give rise to skin cells. This is why um, kidney cells will only give rise to kidney cells. This is why you don't get teeth appearing in your eyeballs. I actually wanted to call the epigenetics revolution no teeth in your eyeballs. And it's a source of great regret to me that my publisher wouldn't let me. Um, it's epigenetics. Every cell is inheriting the same DNA. It's inheriting different epigenetic um, modifications. These modifications, in some cases, they can go on and they can come off in half an hour. And that allows cells to respond really, really quickly to the environment. So lots of alcohol comes in, lots of alcohol goes out. Um, 
you're suddenly um, having a large amount of sugar, you're suddenly not having any sugar. It allows the cells to respond really quickly to changes that happen all the time, all around us, because we're in a constant state of flux. But epigenetic modifications in some cases can get established and can last a lifetime. Now, that's really important for this thing of maintaining cell identity, but it also has health consequences and probably has consequences, particularly for psychological health, which we'll talk about later. And the thing about epigenetics is it provides the link between nature and nurture. We always knew genes and the environment somehow communicated with each other and influence each other. But we didn't know how. It's the putting on and taking off of these epigenetic modifications that allows the environment to interact with genes. So this is the physical link between nature and nurture. It's also worth thinking how all of this happens. And there's a very nice way that's used to describe this. So there are enzymes, proteins that will put epigenetic modifications onto the histone proteins and the DNA. And we refer to these as writers. They write the epigenetic code. But there are also enzymes that will take these off again. And we call these the erasers of the epigenetic code. And it's the balance of these that influences what's happening in any one cell in response to the environment. And there are hundreds of these writers and readers. So again, it's an incredibly complex system. Um, sorry, writers and erasers, what, what I should just have said. And then we also have readers. When these epigenetic modifications get put on to DNA or the histone proteins, other proteins come along and can basically read which modifications are there. And they start the next stage in how the cell responds to those changes. So we have writers, we have erasers, we have readers, and it's a very dynamic system. And I think it's fascinating from a biological point of view. I think it's amazing. We can now understand things like how the turtles end up male or female. It's all to do with which modifications get put on. But does it matter beyond just the gloriousness, which is understanding basic biology? Well, yes, it really does. For one thing, epigenetics can be used to find new ways to treat diseases. This is what I worked on for a decade of my life. There are, for example, two drugs which are already routinely used in certain types of cancer. The one on the left is called Fidesa, and that affects the yellow jelly tots, the ones that go directly onto the DNA. It affects those modifications. And that's used really successfully to control a blood cancer called myelodysplastic syndrome. The drug on the right is called Zalinza. This is one that influences much more the modifications to histones that tell a gene to get switched on, so the green jelly tots. And this changes part of that process. And this is used really well to control a condition called cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. So both of these drugs target blood cancers. The weird thing about these drugs is they were actually developed and shown to work in cancer before anyone realized they were working through epigenetic processes. But once people realized they were working through epigenetic processes, it triggered a huge number of other drug discovery programs. So there are now lots and lots of drugs in phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials targeting other, can <coughs> excuse me, other cancers and doing it through attacking the epigenetic system. Cancer has been a really big topic in epigenetics, but actually we now think that epigenetics 
may be a way of treating other kinds of conditions as well. We suspect that lots of conditions may be driven by abnormal epigenetic processes. If we think about stuff like type 2 diabetes or rheumatoid arthritis or any of the chronic conditions, the ones that tend to develop relatively late in life and then last a really long time, we think those might be partly at least driven by epigenetic processes. Because there was nothing wrong with that person's DNA because it worked perfectly fine for decades. But something else has gone wrong. Their DNA hasn't changed. And the way I visualize this is imagine you have a bike and it's a beautiful bike and you want to go for a bike ride. But you can't because somebody has chained your bike to a bike stand and you don't have the key for the lock. If you could just get the key for the lock, you could unchain your bike and you could go for a bike ride. In chronic diseases, whoa, sorry, my computer's trying to scan. Right. In chronic diseases, we see a similar thing happening. There's nothing wrong with the DNA sequence. It's just got locked in the wrong patterns of expression. If, and almost certainly that has happened through epigenetics. If we could find a way of unlocking the epigenetic system in these diseases and creating the right epigenetic signals, that would be like unlocking the bike. And we could then go and start reversing the condition. That would be fantastic. Oh, dear God, don't know why McAfee keeps trying to scan my computer. I do apologize. So there is lots of work going on in drug discovery to try to treat chronic diseases. It may also be very important because we know that many diseases start early. This is a theory known as the fetal origins of adult disease that says basically what happens, particularly in the first three months in the womb, are incredibly important for lifetime long health. We know that smoking is very bad for unborn babies. We know that alcohol can be very bad for them. But we also know that if the mother is um, obese, that can have long-term consequences for the baby and their health as they grow up. And basically what seems to be happening is that the fetus is responding to the environment it's in, the uterine environment, and using the epigenetic system to produce certain patterns of gene expression. And these patterns of gene expression get stuck and they program the child, the, the, sorry, the fetus for how its physiological systems will react as the child gets older. So again, epigenetics is the point where we might be able to think about new ways of intervening. I'm gonna continue with that theme of what's going on in um, the fetus by looking at my favorite mice. I think these mice are gorgeous. These are called the booty viable yellow mice. And extraordinarily, the two mice in this photo are genetically absolutely identical. They have exactly the same DNA as each other and they were raised in exactly the same conditions. But one of them is gorgeous. It's fat and yellow and it's beautiful. And the other one is a pretty typical nice mouse, it's brown and it's skinny. The only reason these two mice are so different from each other is that a particular part of their DNA, they have particular epigenetic modifications, actually the yellow jelly tops, they have particular DNA modifications. And that DNA modification, some gene expression, and that changes what the mice look like. Now, here's a fantastic experiment that somebody did, though I've never understood why. 
they worked on the basis, this is a fabulous scientist called Emma Whitelaw in Australia, and Emma Whitelaw knew that if you breed from the fat yellow mice, a particular percentage of their offspring are always fat and yellow. If you breed from the skinny brown mice, a particular percentage of their offspring are always skinny and brown. Now, that tells you two important things. It tells you that these mice pass on that epigenetic information, that pattern of yellow genes. But it also tells you they don't do it perfectly. Because if they did it perfectly, if all of their offspring inherited that same modification, then a fat yellow mouse, all of her offspring would be fat and yellow, and a skinny brown mouse, all of her offspring would be skinny and brown. But they're not. Some of them are, but in very definite ratios. But if you gave female mouse alcohol, when she had her offspring, it was a completely different ratio of fat and yellow to skinny and brown compared with what you'd normally expect. So that tells you that actually changing the environmental conditions for the mother changed the outcomes for the offspring epigenetically because this entire phenotype is driven epigenetically. It's a really interesting finding, and that's very similar to what we imagine when we think about things like fecal, fetal alcohol intake. So that's, that's a really weird situation. And actually, it was true even if you gave the mother alcohol before she was even pregnant. So we're seeing this effect of the environment on the epigenetics of offspring. Bear that in mind, but let me just segue you something that might seem a little bit different, but actually is fairly related. It's something really strange. I've put on here some gorgeous animals. There's a fantastic stick insect. There's a zebrafish. There's a rather beautiful salamander. There is an absolutely gorgeous Komodo dragon. I love Komodo dragons. There's even a zebrafinch. So what we have here are representations of many parts of the animal system. And all of them, even controversially, the zebra finch can do something that mammals can't do. And that something is parthenogenesis. Females in these species can create young without ever hated. In fact, anyone who has ever given one stick insect will know this because you end up with hundreds of stick insects. Mammals can't do that. Mammals cannot ever do parthenogenesis. It just doesn't happen in mammals. And you kind of need to ask yourself at some point, well, why not? And originally the thought was, well, it's because you have to have an egg and a sperm and they have to come together, which is kind of true, but more of a description than explanation. And here is my absolutely favorite experiment in the whole world. This was carried out in the 1980s by a man called Azim Sarani at the University of Cambridge. Azim's awesome. Who should have had the Nobel Prize by now? And basically, he used the technology of test tube baby technology, in vitro fertilization. What he did was he took a mouse egg and he took out the nucleus, the bit that contains the DNA. And then he injected into that empty egg two new nuclei from an, each from an egg. And they fused and development began, just like you'd normally expect at fertilization. And he put those. He put that fertilized egg into a mouse, into the uterus of a mouse, and development continued for a while, but went completely haywire and no live young. Azim did the same experiment, but this time, instead of putting in two egg nuclei, 
he put in sperm nuclei. And again, they, they fused and development began and he implanted them into the uterus of a female mouse. But again, development went completely haywire. No live mice. Then he did the final experiment. He injected in the nucleus from an egg and he injected in the nucleus from the sperm. They fused, development began, implanted it into a female uterus, and the right number of days later, live mice were born. So far, so obvious, you might think, but here's the bit that was really clever. In all three of those patients, whether it was two eggs, two sperm, or an egg and a sperm, the DNA was exactly the same. There was no difference in the egg plus egg, or the sperm plus sperm, or the egg plus sperm. But you only got live young if you had the egg nucleus and the sperm nucleus. That told you that mammalian reproduction is not dependent on, on DNA. DNA enough, alone is not enough to create new mammals. You need additional information in there. And that additional information is epigenetic information. It's modifications to DNA, it's the yellow jelly tots. And these have to be passed on and passed on during reproduction in exactly the right way, or you can't get human, you can't get mammal babies. Mammalian reproduction is completely dependent on epigenetics. There's only certain regions of our DNA where these epigenetic modifications need to be passed on. Um, most epigenetic modifications are removed during the production of eggs and sperm, but there are these regions where they have to be maintained. And sometimes just one of those regions can be wrong. The epigenetic information gets passed on badly. When it does that, you get really quite severe disorders in humans. Um, the lad in this photo has a condition called Prader-Willi syndrome. Uh, huge appetite will overeat enormously severe learning disability. The girl in this photo has something called Angelman syndrome. This is characterized by failure to thrive, very underweight, but again, um, severe intellectual disability. And in both cases, what has gone wrong is the epigenetics. There's nothing wrong with the DNA of these children, but the epigenetic modifications have gone wrong. So it's a really important mechanism. And this leads us to a very interesting hypothesis. We know that epigenetic information is passed on from parent to child. Zim Sarani's experiment showed us that. In fact, they showed that it has to be passed on from parent to child for mammalian reproduction to occur. But we also know epigenetic information can be influenced by the environment. We thought that anyway, but Emma Wall's experiments giving alcohol to the mice demonstrated that that is the case. So that raises a really interesting question. If epigenetic information has to be passed on from generation to generation and epigenetic information can be influenced by the environment, does that mean that a parent's environmental responses can be passed on to their children? <coughs> Excuse me, quick slug of Diet Coke. <coughs> Coke Zero. That would seem like a really obvious prediction that we could make, that parents would be able to pass on their environmental responses. It seems incredibly common sense. It is, however, total heresy. It's heresy because it would be an example of Lamarckian inheritance. So Lamarck is the guy who came before Darwin. 
and was trying to explain how we ended up with lots of different species. And we tend to laugh at Lamarck these days um, and think how naive, but he was making a genuine attempt to answer a scientifically important question. And he gave us an example of the giraffe. He suggested that the ancestors of giraffes were wandering around um, trying to get good food and they would stretch their necks to reach the most nutritious leaves on the tree. And just like how your muscles get bigger if you work out at the gym, the giraffe's neck will get longer and then it would pass this on to its offspring. And this is the concept of the inheritance of acquired characteristics. And of course, these days we don't accept that at all. We get the Darwinian model, which is that just by random genetic variation, some animals are better equipped for their environment than others, breed at a higher rate of success, and they will pass on that favorable DNA combination to their offspring. And don't get me wrong, <coughs> I am not suggesting for a second that the Darwinian model is wrong. The Darwinian model is fabulous, beautiful, and supported by a massive amount of evidence. Just that every once in a while, there's a little tweak to it, and the tweak is Lamarckian. And I'm going to show you a beautiful example of it. This works a bit better when the slide animates, but sadly we've lost the animation, but don't worry about it. Basically, start in the top left. Scientists took a mouse and they exposed the mouse to the smell of cherry blossom, and then they'd give it an electric shock. And you do this over and over again, and the mouse learns to associate the smell of cherry blossom with an electric shock. It's a classic conditioning experiment. And pretty soon, Every time the mouse smelt cherry blossom, it would start to shake with fear, as I think I would, because it knew an electric shock was coming. So researchers conditioned the mice to this situation, and then they allowed these mice to breed. These were male mice. And in the next generation, which is called the F1 generation, they exposed these mice, um, these mice to the smell of cherry blossom, and they shook with fear. They had never had an electric shock. They had inherited from their parent, their father, the fear of cherry blossom. And there was no way that this was happening because of mutation, because it was happening at a rate massively higher than we would ever see for mutation. It was the epigenetic inheritance of a fear response. One of the beautiful things about this experiment was that the experimenters knew exactly how mice do this in the sense of how they smell certain smells and what it does to their brain. And so they knew exactly which cells to look at in the brain and they knew exactly which gene to look at in the brain. And they were able to show that once the mouse into the smell of cherry blossom, it created epigenetic changes at a particular gene in a particular region of its brain. And when they examined the offspring who also had the same fear response, they found exactly the same epigenetic changes. Now, this work is incredibly complex, and it this and other experiments like this remained very controversial. But in 2017, work was done using tiny little microscopic worms, which showed beyond a doubt that epigenetic information can be passed on from parent to offspring, and in the case of these worms, through multiple generations. Particular responses to the environment can be passed on through epigenetic means. I think now no one can genuinely argue with whether or not this happens, it's where, how often it happens and how important it is. So it's a really important thing and it's something to bear in mind for the next bit of the talk.
And just before we take a break, you can give me three minutes more. We will um, talk about an amazing case that just rounds up epigenetically how extraordinary this entire field is. And we're going to look at something called Rett syndrome. Rett syndrome is a condition that affects girls, which is a really heartbreaking condition for the families. At first, the little girl will seem to be developing perfectly normally. She'll meet all her, all her normal developmental life milestones. But then from about 12 months on, she starts going backwards, begins to lose those responses. So loses any language skills that have developed, um, develops very repetitive hand actions, uh, has quite severe intellectual disability and it's essentially a very very extreme form of autism this incidentally is probably where some of the fear about vaccines for mmr and autism developed is that parents saw that their child had been doing fine and then stopped doing fine and they associated it with the vaccines the reality is that these symptoms develop at about the same age that vaccines are usually administered so it the two things weren't causative they weren't related to each other so Rett syndrome is a very heartbreaking condition, and it's caused by a, muta by a mutation. So these girls have got a DNA sequence that's wrong. But the DNA sequence that's wrong codes for one of those readers. Remember I told you earlier in the talk about proteins that will bind to epigenetic modifications and trigger the next set of signals? Well, in these girls, it's in a protein that binds to the yellow jelly tops, the modifications to DNA itself. So those epigenetic modifications are laid down fine, but the girl's cells can't read them. Now, there's a guy called Adrian Bird, ordinary scientist, works at the University of Edinburgh. And he created mice that have the same mutation as the girls have who have Rett syndrome. Um, and for those who like gene names, this gene is called MECP2. And these mice, he allowed them to develop, but the really close was that the mice could grow up having Rett syndrome, essentially. They could have this mutation in the gene so that they couldn't read epigenetic signals. But then he'd switch on an active version of this gene. And here's what happened. I'm going to show you the mice. Now, I'm going to do this via a video. So this is a mouse that basically has Rett syndrome. Oh, Niall seemed to have loved. Is it coming? Yes. Okay, here's a mouse with Rett syndrome. It's been plonked down in the middle of a tray and it's just sitting there. That is very uncharacteristic for mice. In fact, if the camera wasn't shaking, you'd barely know that this mouse was actually there or, or rather this was being filmed. So the mouse just sits there doesn't explore, doesn't do anything. And when it's picked up, it just dangles in the air. It just hangs there. So that's a mouse with Rett syndrome. Now, let's see if I can get back to the other one. Okay, what I'm gonna show you now in a moment is that same mouse, not just a mouse from the same experiment, but actually the same mouse. And this mouse, it's had its gene switched back on, and it is extraordinary. Let's just get this up. Not going to panic. 
No panic from me. No siree. Aha, here we go. So this mouse, plonked down, same one as we saw earlier, is wandering about. It's having a look. Now it's gone to the edges of its box, as you would expect. And it's rearing up on its back legs. Anyone who's watched a mouse go along the skirting board will know this is typical mouse behavior. It's inquisitive. It's curious. It's wondering what's going on. It's having a look around. It fancies exploring the world. In a moment, a hand is going to come down and it lifts up the mouse and it doesn't just dangle there, it sticks its legs out, which is typically what mice do. In those experiments, what Adrian Bird has demonstrated is that even if the brain has developed with this complete breakdown in its epigenetic system, leading to totally abnormal behavior, if you can reverse that molecular problem in the brain, the mouse goes back to normal. Imagine if we could do that in the girls with Rett syndrome that these children could just resume their developmental pathways. This is the first experimental indication, by the way, that intellectual disability could be overcome. That's an extraordinary concept. We can't do that yet. We don't have drugs that will enable us to do in humans what Adrian was able to do in mice using genetics, but it indicates that it's feasible and it makes it worth trying to create those drugs. That's extraordinary, reversal of intellectual disability. I'm going to make you think about a publishing phenomenon that was really big, um, especially a few years ago. Um, and it literally used to be possible to walk into bookstores and find a section called Tragic Life Stories. And probably the example that was most famous for this was a book called A Child Called It by Dave Peltzer, which was on the New York Times bestseller list for something like 76 weeks, something insane. And these stories all followed a very similar arc. A child had a terrible, abusive, neglectful upbringing and somehow overcame adversity and became a very successful adult. And I always found a bit of an ick factor in these books. I didn't really get involved with this genre. I found it a bit voyeuristic, but they were incredibly popular. And I think part of the popularity was because of the happy ending. But I wonder if behind that, the reason that these were so popular was because somehow either consciously or unconsciously, we knew that the happy ending was the exception. And therefore, we were reading about exceptional people. Because there are sadly vast amounts of data that demonstrate that happy ending is not the norm. Now, I've just put one reference up here from one that I picked at random. But there is an enormous body of literature demonstrating that if a child has a terribly abusive or neglectful upbringing, they are at significantly higher risk of physical conditions such as heart disease and autoimmune disorders, but also in terms of what we call psychological or psychiatric conditions. So they're at much higher risk than the general population of depression, alcoholism, other forms of addiction, extreme anxiety, suicide, etc. Um, basically, having a lousy start in life is incredibly damaging for the adult. And this can be the case even if the child was removed from the abusive or neglectful environment. Um, if they were then, say, adopted or into a very loving and caring family, they are still at risk of long-term mental health problems. 
And we take that as uh, basically as red, but why should that be the case? Why should something that happened to somebody when they were seven still be having really negative consequences for them when they're 57? You know, they're in a completely different environment. Why, why are they still trapped in a high stress response to their world? And when you ask somebody that, the response is usually, well, the child was psycho the this individual was psychologically damaged as a child, and that damage has persisted into adulthood. And that is all very well. But it's a description, it's not an explanation. It's just telling us what we already know, but rephrasing it in a different way. What's the molecular basis for this? Because to somebody like me who is a biologist, I'm a big believer everything will have a physical basis because for me, concepts like the soul or the id or personality, they have to have a physical basis somewhere or for me personally, I don't know how to engage with those concepts. So let's see if we can think about how that happened. And there's a very good working hypothesis. When a child is going through trauma and stress, they're at a stage where all their brain responses are still very plastic. They're very, very, they can still respond in particular ways to their environment. Nothing has become particularly hardwired. And the idea is that in response to the stress and the fear, certain pathways get overactivated in the brain, others get repressed, and they're basically an adaptation to allow the child to deal with the situation they're in. Typically, they're associated with fight or flight responses. But that if these are established at a particular time using epigenetic modifications, they can get stuck. And those epigenetic modifications, remember I told you some of them could be incredibly stable. So they remain in place in the genes in the brain, keeping the brain in trauma response mode, even if the child is no longer in a traumatic condition, even if 30 or 40 years have passed. It's a very good, very attractive working hypothesis. <clears throat> but the problem is it's extraordinarily difficult to investigate, and you certainly can't do it in humans. Even if we left aside the logistical issues, the ethical issues are completely overwhelming. But you can investigate this in rodents, and that's what people did. And here's one of the experiments. Now, basically, rat babies like to be loved. And the way that a rat baby feels loved is if its mother licks it and grooms it a lot when it's a very young baby. If a rat baby is licked and groomed a lot when it's little, it's quite a happy baby and it's quite relaxed. And you then take the rat baby, the rat babies leave their mothers after a few weeks. You know, rat babies do not hang around for 30 years hoping to help with the mortgage. It's quite natural that they leave their mother. And if a few months down the line or a year down the line, you take that same rat baby and you expose it to a mildly stressful stimulus, rat baby is like the one in the bottom left there. This adult doesn't care. It, you give it a mildly stressful stimulus, it just kind of shrugs. It's the whatever rat. It's very chilled. <clears throat> However, if you take a rat baby and its mother is a bit of a um, feckless mother and the baby doesn't really get much licking or grooming, that baby starts to become quite stressed. Now, again, after a few weeks, it will leave its mother. And if the same period of time later, a year or whatever, you give that rat baby a mildly stressful stimulus, sorry, the rat adult a mildly stressful stimulus, it jumps out of its skin. It's on the ceiling with stress. It is a highly stressed 
adult rat. What happens in those rats is if the baby is licked and groomed a lot, which is how it experiences what we would think of as love, <coughs> it's very relaxed and it produces a large amount of the neurotransmitter serotonin, which is the happiness one. Sorry, I have to hit the code zero again. The serotonin sets up signaling pathways in the brain and you get a particular set of epigenetic modifications to the histone protein, um, basically like the green jelly tots. And they're on certain genes in certain brain cells and they stay in position on those genes in those brain cells. And what they do is they dampen down the whole fight or flight response because this rat baby is in an environment where actually it doesn't need to be terribly stressed. On the other hand, if it's a rat baby that hasn't been licked and groomed a lot, it doesn't produce much serotonin and you get a different level and different types of epigenetic modifications on the genes in its brain. And the effect of these epigenetic modifications is to drive up the stress response um, and to make the animal just more more of a hair trigger in terms of how it reacts to the environment. Basically, it's always expecting something bad to happen, and so it responds really explosively to anything negative. This is all to do with what's called the adrenaline cortical axis. So cortisol is a hormone which is produced in response to stress. If you look at the chilled out rat babies when they're adults, their cortisol levels are quite low. But if you look at the adults that hadn't been licked and groomed as babies, their background cortisol levels are high. They're always expecting something stressful. And actually, we see that in adults who had very neglectful or abusive upbringings as humans. So we can see that there is a very nice model here for why early childhood trauma could become hard set as an inappropriate fight or flight response for later adult life with all the consequences that has for things like anxiety and addiction as a means of self-medicating, etc. It's probably tempting to think, well, if we understand the physical basis of it, the molecular basis, why don't we create drugs? Why don't we create drugs so that we can treat those children so that they don't go on to have the ethical, uh, sorry, to have the adult trauma? And there are various reasons why we can't. One is that it's far too complex. The human brain, this is one of those expressions I got from someone, I love it. The human brain is the most complex 1.5 kilograms of material in the universe. Billions of cells making literally trillions of connections. And although this epigenetic model is a nice one, it's pretty unnuanced compared with the complexity of the human brain. And we really wouldn't know how to create drugs that just target these few maladaptive epigenetic modifications. So it's much too complex to do biologically with our current understanding. Also, remember that the maladaption is only a maladaption when the child goes into a more stable environment. They're perfectly adapted for a really bad environment when these the modifications are being established. It would also be too expensive because what you'd have to do is you'd have to treat children when they were, say, seven years old and then follow them in clinical trials for the next 30 years. That would cost gazillions. No, no drug companies ever going to do this. A very important question is we don't know who to treat. You see, you could have 100 children in very similar environments and only a certain percentage of them grow up to have the mental health conditions as adults. 
and we don't know which ones and we don't know why. And it's probably a complex combination of genetics and environment and chance. So we would be treating a whole cohort of children without actually knowing which ones really need the drugs and which ones don't. That's a very dodgy thing to do. But the other reason why I think we should never do this is because we know how to prevent this from happening. We need children to have safe, supportive environments. And we would be using pharmaceuticals as a means of trying to avoid creating the equitable, just society that we know that children need to thrive. So this is why there is no work on these, on creating drugs to treat this. But it is a really, really interesting way of imagining why adult trauma persists from childhood trauma. It may also not just be in childhood that these things happen. Um, epigenetic maladaptation is an intriguing hypothesis. Uh, another example we might think of is post-traumatic stress disorder. If an adult suffers a very traumatic event, why do they keep having flashbacks? What gets hardwired into their brain that means they are still responding to an event that isn't even happening anymore? We could also think about epigenetics and depression. If you've had one episode of depression, you are much more likely to have another one than the general population. Um, why? Maybe the brain is getting, epi its epigenetic baseline is changing. <clears throat> Maybe it's making you that bit more prone to slipping into a depressive state next time. There are lots of reasons to think epigenetics might be involved in depression. Um, one of the reasons is because the drugs that treat depression most successfully for most people, the ser selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, they change your serotonin levels really quickly, but you don't start symptomatically improving for several weeks. That suggests that maybe there's a longer term process that has to go on, which may be involved with the removal or the reestablishment of certain epigenetic modifications. So there's really good reasons to think epigenetics might be involved in psychological and psychiatric disorders, but testing that is unbelievably difficult. And if we find epigenetic drugs that work in some of these disorders, it may well be that we find them by accident, the same way we did with some of the cancer drugs. Something that's even harder to test, and yet is an area which gets so much coverage in the popular press, people adore this area, is the area of um, transmission of epigenetic trauma. And I cover this because People love this concept, and it is probably a really tangible example of Thomas Huxley's statement of many an ugly hypothesis has been slain by a beautiful fact. So we'll talk about this a bit. It's a very seductive idea. Let's think back to those mice from before the coffee break, the ones that had definitely inherited trauma responses from their fathers in response to the smell of cherry blossom. Once that paper came out, I started getting loads of calls from people working in psychology and psychological conferences asking me to talk about this and saying, because all our members are so excited because they realize now that this can explain why somebody who objectively has a nice life is struggling. Maybe they've inherited epigenetic trauma. So it's a very seductive idea. Why am I so depressed when life is objectively very good? And then you can probe with these patients. And maybe it turns out dad and granddad were traumatized in World War I and World War II, other way around, sorry about that, um, and that this individual has inherited their response to trauma. 
it's a very appealing hypothesis. And I do understand why it's so seductive. But the thing to remember is that there is very little evidence to support this claim. It's an area which is enormously hyped and receives a great deal of attention. And it's very controversial. Um, this was one of the ones that got a huge amount of um, coverage, which was basically saying that the children of adults who survived the Holocaust had epigenetic changes which they had inherited from their parents and which made them more psychologically fragile. And there was so much wrong with this paper. Um, for a start, the epigenetic changes were not the same in the, in the parents who had been through the trauma and their children. They were very different changes, but it was just a claim that these were different compared with the rest of the population. Um, it's also that it worked from the basis that what they call psychophysiological trauma is inherited. Now, that's a very difficult thing to unravel because, of course, for someone who's been through something as unbelievably traumatic as the Holocaust, it's probably quite likely that affects that individual psychologically. That will have different effects on the tension in a household, for example, and in a family and in the way that a family is raised. And actually, that's incredibly important to remember, is that what you might be seeing is just a change in behavior and that that is then influencing the child and that that change is itself reflected in the epigenetics. It does not mean the epigenetic changes were automatically passed on as epigenetic changes to the child. Now, one of the few ways that you could investigate this would be through adoption experiments. You remember that rats that I showed you earlier, the chilled out rats and the um, stress rats? Well, in those experiments, because they're rats, the experimenters were able to do the experiment of switching babies, rats, from one mother to another. And they could show that the final phenotype of the rat was totally due to their early nurturing experiences, had nothing to do with genetics or anything else like that. So there you could show that it was absolutely an environmental response. And what we might be seeing here is in children of people who have been severely traumatized, maybe there's a psychological response to growing up in that household. I'm not implying for a moment that parents who have been traumatized make bad parents, I'm just saying it's different. And papers like this get an enormous amount of coverage, and it's so frustrating because actually the data themselves are fairly weak. So my advice would be every time you see a paper like this, be a bit sceptical. So does epigenetic inheritance in humans, does it happen? Well, in reality, it probably does, sometimes. Um, it's most likely, I suspect, to occur in response to things like diet. Um, and there's certainly good data from animal systems that this is happening. So it may well be that epigenetic inheritance does sometimes happen in humans. Problem is, we'll never prove it, certainly not for an individual. We can show at a population level that we get epigenetic changes and that these are often in response to things like diet. But again, we show them at a population level in the same way that we know if a cohort of children has been traumatized, that a certain percentage of them are likely to have adult health mental disorders. We can't, however, say which of those children will have grow up to have adult health disorders. And so therefore, it's incredibly difficult to demonstrate epigenetic inheritance in humans. 
And it's because we're a lousy model system. It makes it incredibly difficult to pick out the signal that says, yes, we are psychologically and epigenetically influenced by what happened in previous generations. So it's worth spending just a little time to think about why we're so different. So model systems, mouse, those little worms that I told you about, rats, etc., they can be great because you can create experimental groups that are all genetically the same. You take out all the variation that could be caused by DNA changes. Can't do that in humans. Our genetics is incredibly diverse. So that makes the data really messy. Um, with the mouse systems, you can make sure that all the mice or all the rats or all the little worms all have exactly the same environmental experience. You can standardize that as much as possible. You can't do that in humans. We all have massively different environments. Also, what you can do with the model systems is you can create a really simple environment and then give them one massive stimulus and look for any effects of that stimulus. We're not like that as humans. We live in these incredibly complex environments and most of the environmental stimuli that will come at us are fairly small. So we can't do this thing of a very flat baseline and one massive event doesn't happen most of the time in humans. Um, also, these model systems have the enormous advantage that they have loads of offspring and they have them pretty quickly. Humans, we have small numbers of offspring and we tend to take a really long time about it. So, yeah, we're a terrible experimental system. So it's not easy to unravel if this stuff works in humans. But you know what? Even in the mice, you can get really misleading experiments. And I always tell people about this one because it's such a beautiful example of how this work can go wrong. So um, I have to say mice have a bit of a rough time in the labs of epigeneticists, but oh, I've got to admit, this is also really interesting science. Um, experimenters did a set of research where they traumatized a male mouse. And the way that they did this was they basically left it in a cage with a bigger mouse. Now, mice are cowards. If a mouse is outgunned, it just basically runs away. If it can't run away, it keeps getting bullied by the bigger mouse. And the little mouse really gets quite into a state of despair. It doesn't eat very much because half the time it can't get to the food. It stops grooming properly. So it ends up in really bad condition. It's this horrible little specimen of mousehood. And one day, the experimenters took this poor little mouse that's all scruffy and underweight, and they dropped it in a cage with the female who was ready to breed. So lucky day for our traumatized mouse. And he bred with the female, and then he got taken away again. And the female gave birth to a litter, and all of the offspring were really runty. They were really small compared to the size mice should be. And this was in, interpreted by the group who did the experiment as the male mouse had passed on his trauma. So it was an epigenetic transmission of trauma. Another group looked at the data and thought, hmm, I wonder. So they did the experiment again, with one really important exception. At the bit where they picked out this traumatized male mouse and he had been dropped into a cage with a female who was ready to breed, instead of doing that, they didn't take him to the female. They just got the semen out of him. I have no idea how you go home from work and explain that that's what you do for a living. But anyway, they got the semen out and they artificially inseminated the female. And when they did that, she gave birth to a litter and the litter were all of normal size. They weren't runty at all. The male had not epigenetically transmitted his trauma. What had actually happened was that this female had seen this 
pathetic specimen of mousedom coming towards her and somehow or other had thought, I suppose if I have to, I might as well. But I'm sure as hell not going to put a large amount of nutrition into this litter because seriously, look at this bloke. And maybe I'll have another chance with another male and I don't want to have used up all my energy on this one litter from this frankly quite substandard mouse. Um, I try and put this into human terms and the version I usually come up with is I ordered George Clooney, they sent me Danny DeVito. It's that level of disappointment. So this was not epigenetic transmission of trauma. This was a female controlling the amount of nutrition to her offspring. And the really cool thing is we have no idea how she does it. Absolutely no idea at all. It's amazing. But it does show you just how careful you need to be running these sorts of experiments about epigenetic transmission of trauma, even in a model system. So that gives you some idea of how difficult it is to do and to detect in humans. But if it does happen, if we can, if there is epigenetic transmission, what's the implications of that? And if there isn't, what are the implications of that? Should we be happy or sad about it? Well, I always caution about people using epigenetic transmission as a get-out-of-jail-free card. I don't think it works like that. I don't think you can sit there and say, the reason I am 32 stone is because my granddad liked having a donut on a Friday. That's not how it works. So on the one hand, we can't use it as a clear-all card. But on the other hand, it also means maybe we could liberate ourselves a bit from some of the guilt of what we're doing to our descendants. You know, God knows women who are pregnant and who are mothers have enough pressure on them already about all the things they should be doing to make sure their child is healthy. Um, parents shouldn't necessarily be worrying, again, that they had a donut just before they had sex and conceived their child. Because, again, it's probably not that you've ruined that child's life by one epigenetic activity. The majority of things that are important to us as humans that really affect our health are the things that we do ourselves. They're the decisions that we make ourselves and how we enact on those. So I think, yes, this doesn't liberate us from feeling guilty about what we do, but it does liberate us from feeling guilty about what we're doing to our descendants. And actually, guilt's not very helpful anyway. So I don't think we should feel sad about this. Um, I think epigenetics frees us from genetic determinism in many cases, but I don't think that means we should replace it with epigenetic determinism because humans are just too complex. It doesn't work that way. Whenever you read anything about epigenetics, I would caution you to remember a few things. And that is that biologists always make mistakes. It's in the way we trained and it's not to do with making experimental mistakes. It's how we interpret the data. We are always trained to think that the first thing we discover is the most important. Um, probably about 80% of drug discovery, for example, in epigenetics is going into one particular class of epigenetic proteins. And we have no evidence that really tells us those are the most important. It's just that we discovered them first. And so we know most about them. And so then we keep funding research on them and then we publish more papers on them. And then everyone says, you see, those were definitely important. We told you so. We always make this mistake. We do a sort of founder fallacy. If we don't know what something does, we assume it does nothing. For a very long time, people said the epigenetic system wasn't important, didn't do anything. It seemed rather unlikely, but that was the assumption. 
when I created my model of the jelly tots um, with the two clusters of histones and the bit of DNA in between, what I left off is that there is a histone on that DNA in between. And for a very long time, everyone said it was really unimportant, simply meant we didn't know what it does. We now are starting to realize it's probably very important in certain processes. I mean, otherwise, why would a cell make millions and millions and millions of copies of nothing? But we just go, nope, we don't know what that does, therefore it doesn't do anything. Epigenetics drives me mad because people just spend their entire time arguing about their definition of epigenetics. If you get five epigeneticists in a room, you will get five different definitions of exactly what the term means. I actually don't care. We should just talk about the biology. We should also never talk about pathways, really. I do because it's simpler and that's how I've been trained and every biologist I know does. But cells don't work in pathways. They work in very complex networks. Um, it's the same reason why there's no point saying what comes first. Nothing comes first. Everything's working in these circles. And we also pretend that cells and systems abide by our boxes. Um, and if they don't fit into our categories, we say, well, there must be something wrong with that science. It hasn't fitted into our categories at all. That's ridiculous. That means our categories are wrong. That's the one fallacy I didn't used to fall for for some reason. Um, even when I was a kid and people told me bumblebees shouldn't be able to fly, you know, I used to think, well, that's ludicrous. They're flying. There's something wrong with your theory. Um, so we need to be very wary that we put up these nice divisions and then we say the science is wrong. If it doesn't fit into the divisions, it's probably more that our divisions are wrong. And the worst mistake you can ever say in science is that can't happen. Um, epigenetic transmission of information between the generations. Oh, my God. Richard Dawkins fanboys go bananas about that one because in hardline Darwinian speak, that should never happen. Um, I would say Darwin was the premier amongst all data-driven scientists. Absolutely, Darwinian Mendelian system is almost always right. But just occasionally, there's a little tweak to it. It's the epigenetic system. Live with it. Um, things to remember, genetics and epigenetics work together. If there is no point saying things like which is more important. If either bit is wrong, there are bad consequences. Um, also, association does not imply causation. You may see an epigenetic change. It does not mean it was caused by a particular environmental stimulus or that it causes a particular response. And the problem is in biology these days, we now are able to process enormously huge data sets and we can find correlations, but it doesn't mean that they are biologically significant or even that they are related. There's a fabulous website, which is one of my favorites. When I'm bored, I go to this website. And it's a website cited sorry, spurious correlations. It's brilliant. Go to it if you ever fancy just seeing how much association does not imply causation. In humans, most epigenetic effects will be subtle and they will be lost in the background. This is not something to worry about significantly. It's just adding more detail into phenomena that we already knew about, but now we're starting to understand how they happen. And although I mock the Richard Dawkins fanboys and the skeptics about epigenetics and about epigenetic transmission of information between generations, I think it is absolutely appropriate that the more revolutionary the concept, the greater the burden of proof. We should have to prove really stringently that these things are happening. Now, I could, if some lunatic gave me free reign, give you an entire day on epigenetics easily because it covers so much that's fantastic about biology. Um, epigenetics is really important in plants, for example. Um, things like winter, winter sown barley and the fact that it won't flower unless the seeds have been in the ground during the winter, that's completely due to epigenetics. And transmission of epigenetic information happens in plants all the time. 
tree generations. Um, plant biologists can't understand why animal biologists are so irritated about all this. Epigenetics plays a role in aging. It's probably not the only factor, but it definitely plays a role. Um, identical twins. Identical twins are genetically identical, obviously. They're not epigenetically the same. And as they get older, they get epigenetically more and more dissimilar to each other. And this may be part of the reason why you can have a situation where one twin, for example, develops schizophrenia and the other's perfectly healthy. Uh, tortoiseshell cats. All tortoiseshell cats are female. Well, all fertile tortoiseshell cats are female. Um, and we don't have time to go into it. But if epigenetics wasn't a process in ourselves, 50% of people on the planet wouldn't exist because epigenetics is essential for females to be able to develop. We have two copies of an X chromosome. Men only have one and we switch one of ours off epigenetically and it's vital. We can't survive if we don't. Um, this sheep is Dolly the sheep, the first cloned mammal. Um, I always point out at this point that Dolly in that photo is dead. She's being wheeled to her case in the Royal Scottish Museum. It wasn't that she was so grand, she just refused to walk in anywhere anymore. Epigenetics is the reason why cloning is possible. It's also the reason why cloning is very low efficiency. And my favourite example is honeybees. Honeybees. If you sequence DNA from a queen honeybee and a worker, you can't tell which came from the queen and which from the honeybee, uh, which from the worker. And that's because they're genetically essentially the same as each other. The only thing that turns a queen into a queen is that she is fed royal jelly for longer as a grub. And that causes enormous changes in her body and her physiology. And those changes are involving epigenetics and maintained by epigenetics. And to give you some idea of just how extreme a difference you can have in phenotype because of epigenetics, a queen honeybee will live for about 20 times as long as a worker. If you put that into human terms, we are halfway through the reign of Queen Elizabeth the first. It's an enormous change and epigenetics plays a role in that. So epigenetics, it's fantastic. It's marvellous. Approach it with a bit of scepticism. And we have 20 minutes left for questions, which I think is what Niall told me to aim for. So apologies again about the technical glitch. And thank you so much for your attention. And please get the questions coming. Thanks very much for a talk there. I think people really enjoyed that. I think it was really accessible as well. Um, so we've got we've got about maybe seven or eight questions here people have asked. Um, so I'm just going to read them one by one. Okay, so the first one is from Lauren and she's asked, do you know of any labs working on autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis? If not, which are working on rheumatoid arthritis? And is there any way we can conduct epigenetic GWAs to identify specific patterns in patients? Great. Thank you very much. It's a great question. So the last bit is about what we call GWAS scores, which are gene, sorry, GWAS, which is genome-wide association scores. And basically, we know if you look at DNA in individuals with and without certain diseases, that you can show there are certain combinations of genetic sequences which make us more susceptible to a disease. Um, the difficulty with things like multiple sclerosis and lots of other of these conditions is that there may be a hundred different sites in the genome all contributing 1% to the risk. But often what we don't know is why those contribute to the risk. And we think one of the reasons might be because depending on the sequence, you may be more or less prone to get epigenetic changes at that sequence, which can tip you towards gene expression that leads to these disorders. 
So there's, that's a lovely example of genetics and epigenetics working together. There are some labs working on this, Lauren. Um, can't remember the names of the ones that are working on autoimmune diseases at the moment, but very happy to look them up. There are certainly labs that are looking for these associations. The difficulty is converting these associations into meaningful biological data that we can actually intervene with. Um, and you also have to be very clear that what you're seeing is a genuine biological signal, not um, a response to something else. And the reason I say that is there's been a really nice piece of work done with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, trying to find an epigenetic signal associated with developing chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And the lab found a signal, and luckily they were a very smart lab. And it would have been really easy to publish this and say, aha, in people with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, they have an epigenetic change at this position in their genes, and that is triggering chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Actually, that wasn't what was happening. The epigenetic change they saw is one that happens in response to smoking. And smoking is a known major risk factor for, epi for COPD. So they couldn't demonstrate that the epigenetic change they found was driving the biology of the disease. It may just as easily have just been a response to smoking and the smoking was driving the disease by other routes. So you have to be incredibly uncomfortable how to unravel these. One of the areas I think as well that we're going to start seeing a lot more work on and the data are just starting to emerge are data suggesting that childhood trauma and neglect um, basically make people much more susceptible to autoimmune conditions. And this relationship between the neurological system and the inflammatory system is one we're only just starting to unravel. And epigenetics is another layer of complication on that. Um, one thing I should probably warn you of is almost every question you ask, my answer will contain various details like that and basically come down to it's all really complicated and none of it's black and white there's loads we don't know about epigenetics so i apologize in advance for the fact that will be essentially my answer to almost everything but that's because that's the reality okay i like the disclaimer there um, I'll get on a t-shirt next time i think <laughs> um gita has asked are there any inputs on uh type 2 diabetes reversal she's interested to know um, again, it's not something that we have a great deal of information about at the moment. The problem with this situation is that with something like type 2 diabetes, we have very poor understanding of everything that's going wrong in type 2 diabetes. And again, what you have to discriminate between is data and information. So it would be fairly easy, for example, to take blood cells from people who have type 2 diabetes and compare the epigenetic signatures or the epigenetic patterns that you see in there from people who don't have type 2 diabetes. The problem is that um, that might just tell you that actually people with type 2 diabetes have a particular range of epigenetic, you know, they get epigenetic changes, but those could be in response to the type 2 diabetes. They may not be driving it. And this question of how much epigenetics simply reflects what's been happening as opposed to how much epigenetics predicts what will happen next and controls what will happen next, that's a really complex one. So there are labs working on it. There are definitely pharmaceutical companies trying to use this approach, but it's very early days, unfortunately. What we do know works in type 2 diabetes is if you're able to have radical enough um, alterations to people's lifestyle. We know that that can actually have a spectacular effect on type 2 diabetes, 
But of course, that's really hard work. And for various reasons, it's very difficult for a lot of people to do. I do think there is a question around the extent to which, with a lot of conditions, we decide on a pharmaceutical approach rather than a lifestyle approach. Okay, that's a great answer. Um, the next question is from Alexandra, and she's asked, are you familiar with the research on highly sensitive people and animals? Apparently, they tend to be worse, worsely affected by childhood trauma, but it looks like they're more robust than non-sensitive members of the species if they received good parenting. Uh, no, I'm not particularly, to be perfectly honest. Um, I was going to try and black my way through that one, but actually... Maybe try and come back to me with it. I'm really easy to find on social media. Um, if you just go to my website, you can find an email address that you can link it to. So I'm not even going to try and blag my way through that one. Sorry. I think honesty is always always best policy here. Um, okay, the next one is from Hal. Um, what is your take on Yehuda's 9-11 study where her take was her having tested all the pregnant women in or within the close vicinity of the World Trade Center and the fetus is low depleted cortisol levels in the first trimester. And then brackets, um, low depleted, lower depleted cortisol levels being one of the symptoms of PTSD, supposedly. Yeah. Um, okay, so don't want to be too critical. Um, but I think... I think there's a real quest for easy answers that is not going to play out well um, because human psychology, um, do we really feel that somebody's psychology can be entirely explained, for example, by their cortisol levels? Um, we, one of the problems that we have is we don't even have the right terms to discuss most of these things. We don't know a biological basis to most human psychology. Even when we take something as overt as depression, one of the reasons why it's incredibly difficult to develop new drugs for depression is because we have no animal models of it. So that makes it hard to do. Um, I think it's really, really difficult to interpret these studies well. We certainly know that stuff that happens in the first trimester is incredibly important in terms of a child's subsequent development. Patterns of gene expression do seem to get stuck. Um, but again, the difficulty is this is always at a population level. We can't do it for individuals. And I'm, I'm very skeptical about Pat, um, about explanations which are too clean and straightforward and based on one gene in a blood sample. Um, <coughs> that may not be a good surrogate marker. Cortisol is a good surrogate marker for, um, for example, stress levels. But so often we do experiments really badly. So, for example, people want to investigate what's happening in somebody's brain and they take a blood sample. Well, why is that a good surrogate of what's happening in someone's brain? It's pretty good for cortisol, for stress. But if you're trying to look for more... Um, more precise information, it can be a very bad marker because the pattern of epigenetic modifications that you get in the white cells of the blood may bear no relationship to the pattern of epigenetic modifications that are actually present in the precise region of the brain involved in certain phenotypes. So one has to be very careful not to expand the phrase epigenetics to mean anything a bit funky that we don't understand, it must be epigenetics. 
And so I'm, I'm fairly skeptical about those data. I'm not suggesting for a moment with work from those groups that they're doing anything fraudulent, not at all. What I'm suggesting is I don't necessarily agree that the data are strong enough to support the conclusions that they draw. Right, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, the next question is from Gita, and she's asked, how any genetics and specific foods? For example, you mentioned sugar and alcohol. Are there any foods that cause a sharper change in our epigenetics versus others? No, and it's, again, it's an impossible question. 70 trillion cells, all of them reacting to all sorts of stimuli coming in at the moment, um, at any moment. So which epigenetic modifications do you look for? Remember I told you that, say, on the histones, there are at least 60 different epigenetic modifications. So even if you imagine one gene, or even just one cluster of histone proteins at one gene, there are 60 potential modifications in, I don't know, what would be the, would it be one to the 60, uh, sorry, one to the 60, 60 to the whatever multifactorial combinations, if you think of how 60 things can fit together. Um, then the problem is you can't, with a person, say the only stimulus happening to that person is that they are eating turmeric at the moment. And therefore, any change that we see is due to the turmeric. There will be a hundred other things happening in that person. So you can't use foods to target a specific and drive a specific epigenetic change in humans as far as we are aware. There is a real tendency to think if we could understand the epigenetic signatures, we could identify superfoods and everyone could have the superfoods and then we'd all be fine. And it's not that much different from saying if only we could take a pill for everything. Niall and I were discussing this before the talk and I was saying, I love epigenetics, but it doesn't change the basic stuff, which is that if you want a healthy lifestyle, don't worry about so, you know, if you want to be healthy, superfoods, etc. Don't worry about it. Just do the normal thing. Eat more fruit and veg. Cut down on alcohol. Don't smoke. Stay a healthy weight. Do some exercise. Try and have strong relationships. We are not going to find an epigenetic superfood that takes away those needs. So it's this is about overall adaptations to one's environment. It's very difficult in humans to say one food that'll be fine. That will sort it all out. We don't even know on the whole whether an epigenetic change is good, bad or neutral. And it might happen for half an hour and then disappear and have no long term impacts. This is I cannot emphasize enough how dynamic and complex this system is. So basically follow the health advice that's based on epidemiology and don't worry about what's happening to your epigenome at any one point. OK, that's a great answer. Are you familiar with the concept of the environment of evolutionary adaptation or adaptedness and the the potential like I read a book one time and the author was basically suggesting that we're living very far removed from this environment and if we can kind of align our lifestyle and behaviors more with those of our our ancestors where we spent loads of time like evolving as hunter-gatherers etc and like making adaptations like the paleo diet or the ketogenic diet or whatever that it would trigger more positive epigenetic responses. Um, have you thought about that at all, or is this complete nonsense from your point um, of view? I thought about it. I'm not a huge fan, I have to say. Um, partly because, well, I'll, I'll give you an example. I was chatting with a mate of mine who at that point was digging into the biggest stake I have ever seen. Right. Um, and he had nothing else there, just this huge lump of a cow on his plate. 
And um, he said, yes, I'm following the paleo diet because that's how we should be. And I looked at him and I said, what do you suppose life expectancy was in the paleo times? And he was, he was like, well, probably about 25, 30. It was like, okay, yeah, that's not necessarily great, is it? Um, and, of course, it was infectious diseases that tended to kill most people back then. It wasn't necessarily um, just because of the diet. Um, also, the paleo diet thing really irritates me because if you look at hunter-gatherer societies, in the majority of cases, meat makes up about 15% of the diet. Mm. Um, it's actually a, a predominantly vegetable-based diet, and yet that always gets overlooked. I think the most fantastic thing about humans, which is also the most disastrous thing about humans, is the fact we are so divorced from our evolutionary antecedents. Um, on the one hand, we couldn't be having this conversation if we didn't constantly move away from what most other species do. So we're fabulous. On the other hand, we're awful because we are having real problems with mental health epidemics. We have real problems with what we do to the planet. That's a whole different one. Don't get me onto that one. Um, I don't think there is necessarily something we could define as being the natural human state and that we have fallen almost from this state of grace. Um, I mean, I can't think of a bigger evolutionary avoidance strategy than vaccines and thank heavens for them. You know, so there's, it's, it's our ability to change our environment, which is our greatest strength and our greatest weakness as a species. And yes, it is pretty clear that in certain areas, such as what we've done to the way that we eat, that is incredibly unhealthy for us if we do it the wrong way. It is pretty clear, I think, that psychologically, things like having no access to social support, being in a highly urbanized environment, those are bad things for us. Whether that badness, as it were, is being mediated through the epigenetic system, I don't know. And I don't want to claim everything is epigenetics. You know, even the childhood trauma, epigenetics is probably part of the answer, but there will also be changes in the way that the brain connections are forming. There's all sorts of stuff going on. 100%. Um, our next question here is from uh, Monica. Are there any books, websites or articles you'd highly recommend in, in this subject? Well, I do. So I think the epigenetics revolution is a cracking book myself, you know, so I'm still really keen on that one. Um, be a bit careful. There are some books which are just shockingly awful. They're just, you know, epigenetics is the answer to everything and it isn't. Um, some of the websites, there was a, I would have to check if it's still operational, but there's a very good one called Epigenesis, which is E-P-I-G-E-N-E-S-Y-S. -E -E and that was the public engagement website of um, a pan-European consortium working on ep epigenetics. And that one was fantastic. You could spend days happily going through that website because they were really passionate about communicating the science, but also communicating where there's stuff we don't know. Mm. and things we haven't found out about. Um, and I don't want to sound snobbish, but I would absolutely, on YouTube, just check out the affiliations of people who are giving the talks, etc. Um, you know, there are fabulous people working in epigenetics. So focus on them. You know, focus on the ones who really seem like they have the academic credibility. There's beautiful work going on in this field. Okay, cool. Um, we'll link to these in, you're going to get emailed the resources document after everybody. Um, we'll link to these or any, any links mentioned 
um, in the talk there. Um, so we've got one from Anna. Are there any examples of a single base change or other genetic mutations in a gene that can cause epigenetic changes? Yeah, absolutely. So the Rett syndrome one is a classic one in that the children can no longer read epigenetic changes. But um, the other ones are um, we find in certain cancers. So there are certain types of cancer where what has happened is the patient's DNA has mutated. So there's been a mutation, and that mutation means that an epigenetic protein starts doing the wrong job. And that creates a cascade. So it switches certain genes on much, much more highly than they should be switched on. And that starts driving the cell towards cancer. So we definitely have examples where you're either born with a mutation that messes up the genetic system, or you randomly acquire a mutation that messes it up. So you can have a genetic mutation where the final disease is mediated through epigenetic mechanisms. And actually, when that happens, what you try to do is create a drug to change the epigenetic process that's going wrong, rather than trying to reverse the genetic mutation, because that's much, much harder. Okay, great. Um, we've just got time for one more question. It's from Ileana. Um, what are your thoughts on the work of uh, Bruce Lipton? Okay, so some of you may want to check out Bruce Lipton. What I would say is that I come at epigenetics and at human psychology in a very from a very different angle from Bruce Lipton. He and I, I think, have very different cognitive frameworks on this one. So, yeah, it's it, it's not my thing, would be what I would say. Okay, fair enough. Um, well, Nessa, that's all I've got time for. I just want to say thank you so much for a brilliant presentation. I think everyone has loved this. And yeah, everybody, um, thanks for tuning in. We'll be back now at one o'clock with our second talk from uh, Marion and Leah. So, Nessa, thanks a million and I hope you enjoy the rest of your, your Sunday. Absolute pleasure. And I hope you guys all enjoy the rest of the day. It looks like it's going to be an awesome day. Thank you so much for inviting me. Awesome. Okay. See you guys soon.